When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Fun Home, winner of five Tony Awards, including Best Musical. The Associated Press calls this groundbreaking production the best of what Broadway can do. Get tickets at funhomebroadway.com. And by The Haters, the hilarious road trip novel about music and friendship by Jesse Andrews, New York Times bestselling author and screenwriter of the Sundance Award winner Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Find the haters at abramsbooks.com slash the haters. And by Green Chef, a new food delivery service that makes cooking easy with consciously sourced healthy recipes and organic ingredients. Get four free meals with your first order when you go to greenchef.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. I just didn't believe he was raised by wolves edition. It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2016. <laughs> that makes me so happy. I didn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I felt like he was raised by two casting directors, one of whom was CGI generated. <laughs> anyway, on today's show, The Jungle Book is a live action remake of the Disney animated film itself, based, of course, on the Rudyard Kipling stories. It stars Neil Sethi as Mowgli, the boy raised by wolves, and features the voices of Idris Elba, Ben Kingsley, Bill Murray, and Scarlett Johansson. We'll be joined, I should say, in our discussion about it by Katie Waldman. We'll discuss the film, but also the tangled politics of Kipling in the 21st century. And then Confirmation is the new HBO drama recounting the cruel public he said, she said that was the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. And finally, will podcasting kill the radio star? What is the future of NPR? Joining me today is Slate's culture editor, Dan Coyce. Hey, Dan. Hello. And uh, of course, Slate's uh, editor-in-chief, that's Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi. Should we explain what we've done with Dana? <laughs> what have we done with Dana? <laughs> it's what Dana's done to us. Uh, <laughs> she's she's off on book leave. She She's going to go spend the next uh, several weeks focusing on her book. So we're going to have an array of delightful guests starting today with Mr. Coyce. Thank you, Dan, for filling in. So glad to be here. All right, Julia, before we get going, will you uh, give us the business? Sure. Well, we haven't yet explained what we're going to talk about for our plus segment. We got a listener question, given that we hail from varied parts, Boston, New York, Dana from Texas, Dan from Wisconsin. The listener asks, did we ever have accents? And if so, what did we do with them? So we will address that question. Uh, and accents generally in Slate Plus. If you are not a member of Slate Plus, consider joining. Go to slate.com slash culture plus and sign up. Last week, we had a doozy of a segment in which we considered uh, what songs from 1990 forward would join the American songbook. And it was a rollicking consideration, I think. I want to jump in right away and say it was one of our best. It was, it was a all-time great slot plus segment to the point that me and Forrest are now discussing how we can like turn it into a big cover story. Ooh, that would be fun. All right. So slate.com slash culture plus to join plus. Stick around after this week's show to hear our discussion 
of accents. All right, Steve, let's dig in. Oh, Thanks, shit. Julia. You're supposed to say digging in. I stole your digging in. <laughs> you stole my digging <laughs> All right, Steve, what should we do next with our shovel? Possibly should we dig in? Love it. Let's do it. Great Onward. idea. Downward into the dirt. <laughs> the Jungle Book is derived from source material from Rudyard Kipling. Of course, it tells the story of a boy orphaned and raised by wolves. It has now been updated to suit American tastes twice by the Disney Corporation, first as a cartoon feature in the late 60s, now as a live-action CGI fest directed by John Favreau. This one stars Neil Sethi as Mowgli, the lupine boy in question. It features the voices of Idris Elba, Ben Kingsley, Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson, Christopher Walken, and an all-star cast. Speaking of which, we're joined today by Katie Waldman, Slate contributor and editor, to talk about the movie and the source material from Kipling. Katie, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Uh, You're very welcome. Before we dive into the controversies, why don't we listen to a clip from the film? I can't help but notice there's this strange odor today. What is it? This scent that I'm on. I almost... almost think it was some kind of... man cub. Mowgli belongs to my pack, Shere Khan. Mowgli? They've given it a name. When was it we came to adopt man into the jungle? He's just a cop. Does my face not remind you of what a grown man can do? Shift your hunting ground for a few years and everyone forgets how the law works. Well, let me remind you, a man-cub becomes man, and man is forbidden! All right. Well, Katie, we are going to get to you soon enough. You've written an intriguing piece about the politics of remaking Kipling's work in the 21st century. But Dan, if it's all right, I'm going to start with Dan Coyce, culture editor of Slate. I'm curious to know what you thought of the movie as a movie. Uh, I thought it was really exciting and really beautiful and uh, a little bit boring. But I think my main issue with it was that uh, it felt like a, a pretty bold and valiant attempt to really transfer the story and to decartoonify it, not really to try and approach Kipling, as Katie will talk about. It's very different from Kipling in many important philosophical ways, but really an attempt to place it in a real physical world and to – through not only – the CGI that is used to create so much of it, but also through its themes to give it some real weight. And so I mostly found it successful in that, except in a couple of wildly crazy moments, specifically the songs. Every moment that in this otherwise quite serious and impressive attempt to real worldify this story, the animals break into song. Um, and they seem mm-hmm. so uncomfortable with it, and the movie seems so uncomfortable with it, and it seems such a, a foolish and lame thing to do in this film, but I'm curious whether you guys thought so. Julia, CGI allows people to do almost anything now, but um, it doesn't mean they should do it. Is, was this uh, was there a reason to make this version of the story? That seems like a different question than did I enjoy it. I think there was there a reason to make it as something we should get into looking at a little bit more of the long history of the book. But I, if, but Julia, if Julia Turner enjoyed it, that was reason enough. <laughs> I'm not sure that's right either. Uh, up, up I will to at least the first hundred and eighty million dollars. <laughs> right now, there are executives in Hollywood scratching their heads, going, ah, "I don't know, but will Julia Turner enjoy it?" 
Um, I will confess that I was not super excited to see this movie. I blah, 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 good reviews, but I didn't really want to go see a bunch of CGI animals running around in the jungle. I also kept thinking of it as Jumanji in my head, like lots of cartoon animals with starting with the J-U, like Jumanji. Um, but then I was totally thrilled. I thought it was beautiful. Uh, and, you know, I think there are some problems with it we can get into, but spending time in this jungle with Mowgli, with these characters, um, that delivered a lot of like delightful and thrilling moments. It was also fairly short and pretty efficiently told. Like there was just one ending to the movie. There weren't like five other endings after the ending the way that we've gotten used to these days. And the joy of Mowgli, the boy, kind of discovering the natural world and, and prancing around in it with comfort and delight and nimbleness uh, was kind of infectious. I came away from it thinking, like, I want to go climb a tree. So mm. uh, thumbs up, thumbs up. Um, I uh, I didn't like the movie. I mean, I, 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 I for some reason, I was like the mother that can't cathect with the baby or something. <laughs> I mean, I, I understood intellectually that it was that it was cute and lovable. Um, I didn't find it either one of those things. It felt to me as if it were shot in a warehouse, which it turns out to have been done. I found the CGI somewhat alienating. I thought many of the, a lot of the voice, vocal performances were terrific. I did like Bill Murray. I really liked Idris Elba. I didn't know why I was watching it. And I hate to say it because it sounds unkind. I didn't like the boy. And if you don't like the boy, he's the one human being in the whole film. And of course, it's his story. Uh, he, he, I, I didn't believe he was raised by wolves. I didn't believe he was in a real jungle. And I didn't believe he was interacting with those beasts. And once that happens, you've got a pretty bad case of postpartum. I'm sorry. You're not going to love the baby. But um, my opinion doesn't really count here. Katie's does. Katie, you know the source material and uh, and you know the original animated movie from the 60s. Talk a little bit about what you thought about the movie as a movie first. But then secondly, what you think the arc of Kipling to Favreau has been. Yeah, I mean, personally, I took a childish delight in this movie. I kind of think that animals are wonderful and these animals are kind of majestic and also cuddly. And there's a scene in which Mowgli um, sort of plays with the jaw of Bagheera, the Black Panther, and the panther just stands there patiently. And there's something about um, these regal creatures behaving with tenderness towards things that are smaller than them that I just found incredibly heartwarming. And I hope that's, speaking of maternal instincts, maybe that's some submerged instinct that surfaced because of this movie. But in terms of... Um, the arc from uh, from Kipling to the 1967 animation to this live action film, it basically did what I think you would expect a Disney film to do. Um, it took a very harsh vision from Kipling, which is all about power um, and the law of the jungle and nature, red in tooth and claw, and it uh, softened it and turned it into a parable of togetherness and harmony and a community of animals coming together to expel this toxic force, this tyrant tiger. And Mowgli sort of reintegrates into the animal kingdom quite seamlessly after he, you know, employs his own ingenious man talents to defeat the tiger. So I definitely think it's a much more feel-good story now than the uh, than the text. All right, so I really want to talk about the end uh, here, the end of the movie, Katie, because there's, there are real differences between the way the movie ends and the way Kipling ends. But Julia, should we give a spoiler warning for that? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that so much of our audience is familiar with the original material here, and there are such interesting distinctions between Kipling's ending, the 67 ending, and the ending of this film that we should just kind of get into it. But if you have not yet seen this version and you'd like to see it unspoiled, you can skip ahead to our next segment on confirmation, which starts, and put when it starts right here. You will want to fast forward to 19 minutes and 45 seconds. That's 19 minutes and 45 seconds to skip the rest of this segment. At the end, that ending that you referred to there is very different from the Kipling, right? And different from the 67 movie. And that's something I really want to talk about with you guys. In the end of this, uh, Mowgli is, the the movie ends with Mowgli happily setting up on a tree branch with Baloo and uh, Bagheera just like hanging out. He finally, having found his man cub place in the jungle, his people, and it has to do with him being able to use his human ingenuity to, I guess, like, improve the jungle just slightly uh, from what nature would have otherwise had it be. And and how does the Kipling book end, Katie? Yeah. So um, with the Kipling book, after Mowgli kills Shere Khan, which is something that he has planned to do since the very beginning of the story, it's not sort of like a, a last minute, well, in order to live, I have to kill this threat. Um, so he, see, he engineers uh, Shere Khan's death, and then he skins Shere Khan. And then he is expelled by the wolf pack, and he also can't return to the human village uh, because they are too superstitious, and they think he has magically killed the tiger and is a sorcerer. And so he is just wandering through the jungle, um, hunting in his own way, and he's kind of this romantic outsider who doesn't belong in either world. That's a wildly different ending. Also different from the 1967 Disney version uh, of course, my favorite ending in which Mowgli uh, is just hanging out sort of by the village and then is tempted by a comely young wench doing laundry, right? Is that right? <laughs> Ooh, laundry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and he, he was all ready to stay in the jungle for the rest of his life, but then this girl's so cute, and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> Kipling, Katie, has a troubled place in the canon. I mean, he's scarcely teachable anymore except as a bad example, uh, you know, of uh, colonial and imperial the worst of colonial and imperial England, uh, and uh, frankly, racist. I mean, obviously, the poem, The White Man's Burden. Talk a little bit about why, if if in some obvious respects, Kipling is now, in, in, one, reg- in, in one regard, a great writer, right? He wouldn't just disappear. He's too talented, supremely talented in some ways, with the English language to just fully disappear. But he's so toxic as to be saddled with asterisk upon asterisk, why this material gets returned to uh, over and over again. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. When I returned to the Jungle Book, the the stories, I was expecting really virulent and blatant racism, and I didn't find it, really. I think he's got a very problematic uh, relationship and vision of power, or relationship to and vision of power, um, in that he really revels in sheer domination and, uh, you know, the tiger uh, gnashing the buck between its teeth. And there's a sense that it is right for uh, the superior species to absolutely destroy the inferior species. And so it's it's not a very uh, harmonious um, and lovely and interdependent uh, view of nature. Um, but I didn't see a lot, in part because there are no white people in um, 
in The Jungle Book, um, there isn't a lot where Kipling um, explicitly comes out and says that there are particular races of man that, like the tiger, are born to dominate. So I think I think that the material allows us to interpret it uh, without that lens. Um, but it is hard when you look at the rest of the stuff that he's written. But the fact mm. that it gives us that option it suggests one reason why we keep coming back to this thing and not to his other work. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's right. Steve, I'm curious for your read on Kipling. I mean, where, you know, what kinds of encounters have you had with his work and, and what do you think it means to, to come back to this particular one at this moment? Um, I spent six months reading Kim to my daughter uh, at bedtime, having never read it before. And um, I think, um, you know, I I don't say this definitively at all. Um, I say it tentatively. First of all, Kipling is an astonishing user of the English language as as a musical and semantic instrument. I mean, up there with, in my mind, with passages from Joyce's Ulysses, uh, you know, someone whose ability to inhabit the language idiomatically and command it idiomatically and and poetically is unrivaled. And so I understand why people would read Kim. I also understand why they would not read Kim. It it he understood that world in a deep enough way that I wouldn't say it's as simple as stereotype. I would also say that he has more of a critical imagination when it comes to colonial rule than maybe he's typically given credit for. I mean, I think he sees it as, in some respects, a savage and ignoble practice in and of itself. That said, you're encountering, I mean, it's an Orientalist work to the hilt, and you'd you'd only teach it advisedly and only read it to a kid advisedly. But not everyone inhabits our own moral universe, and one purpose of literature is to understand that. Did you, I mean, did you talk to your daughter about the broader context of it, or did you just leave it as a story for the moment? Uh, there is no not talking to my daughter about the broader context of anything. Um, <laughs> you know, she demands it from a fucking My Little Pony cartoon. So, um uh, 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 anyway, so yes, we talked about it at length. It's so interesting. I mean, I guess I would say see it for the visuals and maybe not so much for the story. Yeah, I think that's where I come out. Um, all right. Well, the movie is uh, The Jungle Book. It's uh, new from Disney. It's the live action version. Go see it. Tell us what you thought about it. Did it feel like it was uh, threw you into the heart of the jungle or into a warehouse on Pier 16? Let us know. Katie Waldman, Slate contributor. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about The Jungle Book and Rudyard Kipling. Thanks. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? We are sponsored this week by the musical Fun Home. Fun Home is the winner of five Tony Awards, including Best Musical. And uh, I saw it last year and just loved it. I feel like there's so much Hamilton mania right now, it's possible to forget that any other shows exist, especially given the clip at which the New York Times, for example, is covering Hamilton, which is like two stories a day. Uh, or Slate.com. So. I, yeah, Slate.com, I'm sure, has an unimpeachable record on this. But I'm sure you've seen it, Dan. Yes, it's really, really, really beautiful. Uh, It does seem like it's a musical that everyone should be talking about a little bit more than they are. But I also think it's creeping under the radar in a wonderful way and people are finding it and seeing it and loving it. It's gorgeous. I also, the the songs are so beautiful and they really lingered in my mind for days after I saw the show, particularly uh, the song Ring of Keys, which is about this kind of moment of lesbian recognition of of a young girl figuring out that she's gay and spotting an adult woman who 
I guess has sort of got a butch affect and a jangling ring of keys on her waist. It's like this beautiful ode to these tiny sartorial signifiers. I just love that. I mean, there's so many great songs in it, but that song in particular is a real stunner. Anyway, you should definitely go check it out. It's based on Alison Bechdel's acclaimed graphic memoir, and it tells a refreshingly honest story about seeing your parents through grown-up eyes. Get your tickets at funhomebroadway.com. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, Julia, thanks. Moving on. Confirmation is the HBO feature film. It's a retelling of the 1991 confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas, which descended rapidly into a cruel spectacle. The film stars Carrie Washington as Anita Hill and Wendell Pierce as Clarence Thomas. And from deep in the uncanny valley, Greg Kinnear as Joe Biden. It really is an uncanny Biden impression. And then words I thought I'd never say. It also stars Treat Williams as Ted Kennedy. Uh, My How We've Aged. We'll dig deeper into the many details in a minute with Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's legal correspondent and host of the Amicus podcast. But first, let's listen to a clip. If what you say this man said to you occurred, why in God's name, when he left his position of power or status or authority over you, why in God's name would you ever speak to a man like that the rest of your life? That's a very good question. And I am sure that I cannot answer it to your satisfaction. That is one of the things that I have tried to do here today. I have suggested that I was afraid of retaliation. I was afraid of damage to my professional life. I believe that you have to understand that this kind of response is not atypical and I can't explain it. It takes an expert in psychology to explain how that can happen. But it can happen because it happened to me. Dahlia, uh, welcome to the show, first of all. It's just such a delight and privilege to have you uh, join us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I think you said in uh, on Slate that it's, it's almost being brutalized all over again to watch uh, this film. What, what did you mean by that? It's so funny. I can't tell you how many people even uh, on my Facebook page said I, I couldn't bear to watch it again. Uh, I don't think I realized until I was watching it again how much of a wound it still is. It's really, you know, for me, it was the year, I guess, between college and law school when I watched every second riveted like so many other people. And, and I think because there was no satisfactory resolution for anyone who believed Hill, right? It still lingers here 25 years later, except now Clarence Thomas sits on the court. Uh, I think that just kind of probing that again and realizing that happened and we let it happen and Anita Hill soldiers on 25 years later trying to make the world better for women. Uh, it just, it, 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 the, the complete lack of any kind of satisfactory resolution for her, in addition to just the, the excruciating torture of watching, you know, Greg Kinnear's Joe Biden and Treat Williams, Ted Kennedy, just not help her. Oh, mm-hmm. my God, it was so painful. Yeah, a signal moment, not only in the history of the Supreme Court, but in the history of feminism. You had white men on a dais 
completely failing to comprehend the reality of a woman who in high likelihood was uh, sexually harassed by her boss as if they were speaking completely different languages. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about it as a drama. And it, it's clearly told mostly sympathetic to the point of view of Anita Hill as much as it can be, but they didn't stack the deck in one sense, right, Dahlia? They have, it's Olivia Pope versus Bunk. Right? They took they took care, they took care to cast two extremely sympathetic uh, actors in each of these roles. Do you think that this is a balanced uh, portrayal of what happened? Well, I know that Thomas supporters say it's not balanced. I think they feel that you know the writers were in the tank for Hill. Kerry Washington was a producer. This is clearly told from the perspective of. Anita Hill in a way that it is not, uh, you know, we don't get any insight into what's going on in Thomas's head. And insofar as his wife, who has this very, you know, Ginny Thomas has this very constrained role in the film, considering that she's such a larger than life character in real life, but she looks doubtful throughout the movie. And so I think, you know, while sort of you're watching Wendell Pierce playing it straight with all the outrage, I think that the, 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 the portal into the doubt around him almost comes through watching Ginny Thomas's face throughout the movie. I don't know if you all agree with that, but that was my sense of it was that I, I don't think this was trying to be a balanced portrayal. I, I guess I kept wishing for a flashback. I just wanted to see, I wanted them to, 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 to just put them in that room with the pubic hair and the Coke can and, and, and relitigate it. But I think that wasn't the point of the movie. The point wasn't really to relitigate it. I think it was to say this happened. Most of the uh, deep journalistic work that has happened subsequently suggests that she was telling the truth. Uh, so let's agree to that and then figure out what it all means. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that's both dramatically unsatisfying about the movie, but probably true to the role that the incident played in our culture is that fundamentally, at least at the moment, it felt like this he said, she said. And so we spend time in the company of both Hill and Thomas, uh, and you don't quite get inside of how Thomas feels about it at all. I mean, you spend some time with him looking pained and angry, but you don't really understand his tactics, his decision-making, how he felt. And the movie kind of can't do that without more explicitly suggesting that he did do this and was trying to cover it up. There's a clip, I think a contemporary clip, from a media reporter noting that the White House, you know, supported the strategy of suggesting that race was the motive for this set of accusations against Thomas and the notion that like somehow people on Thomas's team and people in the White House like had that conversation and strategically decided to go that way with his testimony like that would have been an interesting scene to see probably would have been difficult to do without um, speculation but you just never quite get inside his mind and that I think makes the movie feel a little bit dramatically inert. On the other hand, on that particular point, it seemed like the movie was making the case that that was an invention of the White House. That Thomas spent the spent Hill's entire testimony pacing around in his backyard, not even watching it, and then went in without taking anyone's counsel and made this move on his own. And that the White House, after the fact, claimed that they were the brain, were the brains behind. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't read it that way, but that's probably right. But the thing that the movie does help you understand is just how confused the senators and their staffers were about how to handle and think about this kind of charge and what it meant to, to place it in all of its lurid, you know, pubic hair on the Coke can detail in this sort of decorous Senate 
environment and on on the airwaves in front of the entire American public. And their dithering and confusion and total ineptitude uh, and total failure to see or comprehend this kind of behavior and what it meant and, and um, how to handle it, I thought was pretty powerfully rendered. Can I be a dissenting voice on this movie? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, did none of you find it just super boring? Like, did none of you, <laughs> did, did any of you come away from this knowing anything new or being surprised by anything in this portrayal? I mean, I feel like I have only the, the most cursory understanding of uh, of these proceedings. And I was in high school when they happened and was paying attention, but certainly not avidly. But there was literally nothing in this movie with a possible exception of like Ted Kennedy very briefly standing up for Anita Hill on the stand mm-hmm. that was a surprise to me. And it felt – and so it felt really dramatically inert to me. It felt like a documentary – in which they had just happened to hire people to play these characters mm-hmm. uh, and they did pretty okay jobs with the exception of Greg Kinnear, who was amazing as Joe Biden. Well, I mean, the Biden stuff I, was news to me. I also saw it in high school or middle school or whatever it was and was totally wrapped with attention. I mean, my parents were consumed by it. We all talked about it a lot. I feel like my sense of like what the hell a workplace was like and what happened there was somewhat informed by it and in, in confusing ways. Um, but the the sort of machinations and the, the failures and ineptitudes of of letting the hearing happen in this way and how unusual and stupid it was uh, was slightly news to me. I mean, we had this set of questions though around the the People versus OJ uh, right. series on FX, where I think in our initial discussion of the show we talked about what is the what is the point of reenacting the history of twenty five years ago dramatically? And I think that show, you know, I haven't watched it through to the end, but it sounds like people found that it had a sensitive and interesting interpretation of how race and gender played out in contrasting ways um, through its interpretation of the Marsha Clark character and that it was that it actually did have a story to tell beyond like, wasn't this exciting and terrible for our culture? Let's do it again. Um, It was also beautifully and artfully made in a way that this movie didn't even really attempt to be. Um, mm -hmm. And those two things together, I think, are, are, you know, I think that this movie, I think confirmation would be much more interesting if it was not coming right on the heels of another better, richer, more beautiful, more surprising version of history of almost the exact same era. And it really pales in comparison to that show. Yeah, yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, I think this one suffers from having to build itself by necessity around two unbreakable enigmas. I mean, the first is that at the end of the day, none of us was there. I'm as inclined as Dahlia to believe uh, Anita Hill. But it is at the end of the day, he said, she said with some corroborating reports and on and on, but you can't, you can't deliver the satisfaction of adjudicating those interactions once and for all. And the second enigma, which is Thomas himself, I mean, he is something of a studiedly inscrutable human being. I mean, his silence on the court, he's apparently choked with rage to this day about this event about which he scarcely is able to speak in anything other than, you know, bitter recriminations. And it's just, it's hard to give anyone who followed it at all something new. One thing I would say, and Dalian, I'm curious to hear you speak to this, is it occurred to me for the first time that one could possibly draw a line from the Oliver North hearings to the Clinton impeachment hearings, and it would go right through these, the Thomas confirmation hearings. In other words, 
it seems as though we developed a taste for public spectacle as a means of adjudicating not only the case at hand, but our own bitter polarization politically and cable TV and microphones and the clackety clacking of cameras and enormous amounts of uh, ideological posturing really became part of the public diet. Uh, Does that ring true to you at all? It it does. And I think, you know, if you remember the bumper stickers and maybe some, I don't know, I I remember the bumper stickers being, I believe Anita, you know, I believe Clarence. I mean, people, what mattered to people was what they believed. You know, this was the first time I remember uh, people watching a proceeding that was not a judicial proceeding. This wasn't OJ. There was no process. The process was deranged. And yet they watched it and they came away saying, you know, I know what happened. Here's what happened. And I'm going to tell you. And I actually think that's exactly what happened after OJ. Uh, People watched the proceeding and they decided who they believed. And I think in a weird way, you know, and there's so many moments in this film where people are in beauty parlors and, you know, janitors are watching and you have that sense of everyone's deciding whose team they're on, right? You have that whiteboard and they keep erasing the whiteboard because what matters is what people themselves believe. That's a really strange I mean, in one sense, that's the world as a jury, and I get it. Uh, It's a very strange way to adjudicate facts. And I kind of carbon date the moment where we decided that, you know, you can't have your own facts. You can't have your own determination that you know better what happened than anybody who was in the room with the Coke can. Uh, I carbon date it to that. People still are as polarized about what happened as they were 25 years ago, and they are certain predicated on having watched that, that they know who was telling the truth. And I think OJ played out the same way. And I think just the last thing I would say is that I would also just, I think it's impossible to watch confirmation. I know it, you know, may seem boring um, to people who don't live at the Supreme Court, but when I compare it to, you know, the in fact constitutional crisis we are having at this moment, where the Senate simply refuses to have hearings for somebody because they don't like the president, uh, it is an amazing electric thing to see process come alive. You know, I, I, I wish that Americans who are still so invested in Anita Hill versus Clarence Thomas would think about Merrick Garland versus Chuck Grassley. This is profound what's going on right now, but people don't have a video. Mm. All right. Well, Dahlia, I would love to do this again. I really hope we can find an excuse to get you back on the show soon and often. Dahlia Lithwick is the legal correspondent for Slate.com. She's also the host of the wonderful Amicus podcast. Uh, If you like listening to this, you will like listening to that. I guarantee it. Dalyu, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you all very much for having me. Uh, And let me add quickly, the show is Confirmation. It's on HBO. Uh, If you have an opinion about these matters, come to facebook.com slash culturefest and uh, tell us what they are. We'd love to hear them. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia Turner, what do we have? The Culture Gab Fest is also sponsored this week by the new road trip novel, The Haters, by author and screenwriter Jesse Andrews, published by Amulet Books. Inspired by the years that Andrews spent playing bass in a band himself, The Haters is a book about music, love, friendship, and freedom. It follows three young musicians as they escape from jazz camp and attempt to dodge the law just long enough to play the show of their dreams. Roddy Doyle, author of The Commitment, says The Haters is terrific. It's shocking and funny, unsettling and charming. And Booklist calls it a raunchy bromance in the vein of Superbad. Jesse Andrews's The Haters will appeal to music lovers and anyone who has ever loved and hated a song. Share the band you hate to love using hashtag The Haters Book. All right, Steve, back to you.
All right, moving on. Uh, last week, NPR published a memo suggesting that its on-air talent should no longer promote its own podcasts. This meant apparently neither describing how to find a podcast from NPR nor how to download a podcast from NPR. Um, and this also meant that uh, their own app, NPR One, would no longer be promoted on the air. This inspired, predictably, a chorus of hoo-ha and outrage about how trapped in its own analog and radically undisrupted past NPR as an institution was, to which NPR and its defenders have replied, bricks and mortar are our bread and butter. If we do away with our relationship with our local affiliates, we have cut out from under us our own source of support and funding. Julia, we're going to talk about this from a variety of angles, not least of which is the fact that we make digital content, uh, audio content ourselves. But first, Leon Nafak wrote a great piece about this issue for Slate. What did Leon say and what do you make of his argument? Well, Leon's piece set out to explore the kind of contentious set of message board posting and backbiting that went on in the wake of the memo about not promoting NPR's digital offerings on air and to expose a conversation that's been going on for a very long time in the podcasting and radio world to the broader uh, audio listening audience that reads Slate. And in his piece, he explored a lot of the underpinnings of these tensions and and also uh, NPR's sense of what it's doing and why what it's doing makes sense. Leon reported out their belief that their focus really is news gathering and the kind of real-time distribution of reported information, and that that is something that's harder to do and sustain in a podcast economic model, something that's valuable, something that, although it is difficult to transition to digital distribution mechanisms because an on-demand news broadcast from 7.05 this morning might be outdated by the time you want to listen to it at 8.57 in the evening when you're doing dishes um, does not mean that what they're working on isn't valuable and and won't find uh, a business model to support it going forward. So the focus really for him was on this this sense of NPR as a news gathering organization and, and the role that that plays in its calculus about where to invest in its digital efforts. But not just that role. Also, as Steve touched on, the role that those member stations and those who whose affiliate fees are NPR's bread and butter have in determining the future of NPR, which may not, in the end, be the, the future that is going to help it survive 20 or 30 or 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. And Dan, that's the issue, correct, right? I mean, they really are Let's begin by acknowledging they're a thriving American institution with tens of millions of avid listeners, and they are relatively flush. That said, they are between something of a rock and a hard place. The business model is, if you live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Dubuque, or the Upper West Side of Manhattan, you have some, and you're an avid NPR listener, as I am, you have some relationship with your local affiliate who once or several times a year, beats the fundraising bushes, gets some money out of you, with which to pay for the national programming that arrives to them via NPR. On the other hand, as with any legacy media brand, their audience is aging out and dying off. And um, I mean, I guess you age out into death <laughs> from NPR and the New York <laughs> Times, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're, I mean, not to be glib about it at all. I mean, they have an older audience and they're not replacing that audience with younger listeners. And the way to do that is digitally. And that will destroy the current business model. I'm very curious along the way to answering this question of what NPR should do, what your listening habits vis-a-vis NPR are. 
my listening habits are pretty minimal. I mean, I I enjoy the shows when they come on, and but I consume NPR much more through its podcasts than I do through its radio shows. I am a big pop culture happy hour listener um, uh, and really like those guys. Um, I love when they have the people from Code Switch come on and the sort of long and torturous process of of having the Code Switch team get their own podcast, which Leon touched on and his piece has been like horrifying to watch from afar. Like those people should be in my ears every week and they're not. Um, and so that's how I experience NPR mostly. That, that isn't to say that I don't have a real appreciation for those sharply edited, beautiful four-minute news stories that they specialize in. And Julia, you're absolutely right that their strength in that means that they have they ought to have a real role, not just in um, in delivering fun to our ears, but in breaking news. And one of the fun things, you know, going back to confirmation, which we just finished talking about, one of the fun things about that movie is being reminded that in many ways it was NPR that broke that news, that Nina Totenberg was the first person to call Anita Hill on the phone and try and get a quote out of her. That So that news gathering apparatus is crucial and valuable. And when they break news, I listen to it, but I'm often listening to it through NPR One in podcast form. I mean, my listening habits have changed utterly over the last 10 or 15 years. I grew up in an NPR house and most of my aspirations as a child were not to be a journalist, but to the degree that I had journalistic aspirations, they were to be on NPR. Like those people were my heroes. I I just thought that was the smartest, most interesting source for information about what happened. And I actually had a, I had a conversation with my sons this morning because my husband and I are going to take them to vote this evening. We're recording on Tuesday in New York City. Um, and I was like, you know what? We don't play news out loud in our house. Like my husband and I listen to podcasts in our ears. We both listen extensively to podcasts, but we get our news information from our phones and to some degree from the paper newspapers that still show up on Sunday morning, mostly to ensure our digital access to the New York Times. Like we don't actually spend that much time with the print newspaper. And so the ambient sense of information about the world that was in my home growing up because NPR was on all the time is not in my current home. And I kind of found myself explaining like why it's going to be exciting to go into the voting booth and what's at stake in the election. And the kids were like, what? Like, <laughs> no, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, huh, I really have to think about that. But to me, the question here, I mean, I, mean, it, I, I felt after reading Lynn's piece, like I understood better part of what NPR is striving to do with NPR One, which is find a way to retain this this real-time news delivery quality of their work in their digital offering. And it did make me want to spend a little bit more time with that app, although then the app started malfunctioning when I went to go use it. Um, but I think the real question about that bet for me is whether audio is the forum in which people will want to continue to get news. There are two kind of medium advantages to getting news through your ears, right? One has to do with the time at which you get the news, right? The advantage of the all things considered newscast in the evening in the old world of print media was the newspaper gave you what happened in the morning and then you went to NPR or the 6 p.m. newscast to figure out what had happened during the course of the day before the newspaper digested it for you the next morning. Like before digital, you needed the kind of 
end-of-day accounting of what had gone on. And either you Sure, get, there was even an economy that supported second newspapers that right, supported for, an afternoon newspaper. For a while, right. And, you know, I grew up sort of after that. But while you still needed those afternoon shows to, like, tell you what had happened in the other 12 hours of the day, and basically, if you were dumb, you watched TV, and if you were smart, you listened to NPR. Like, that was the world I grew up in. And then, you know, but now you can get up-to-the-minute updates on a bombing in Kabul or, you know, the sort of exit polls coming out of the New York primary or anything else at any time from any place. So this the sense of there needs to be news delivered to you sometime other than the morning, that's a little bit weaker. And then there's the question of, like, can you get the news without your eyeballs? Like, the, the other great advantage of audio news is it's news you can get, information you can get. Uh, that's sort of truly mobile. You can do it while you're washing the dishes, while you're walking your dog. You don't have to be looking at a screen or reading something. And so so it's a truly mobile way to get information. And that, you know, that's been the genesis of my extensive podcast listening. There's now all this time in my life that is mediaable, that wasn't mediaable before. You know, I can I can be consuming information while I'm walking to work. I can consume information on the subway. I can consume information in the shower, like I've talked about my obsessive podcast listening habits, but I'm mostly using that for on-demand time-shifted programming that's a little bit more evergreen, you know, and, and some of those reported evergreen pieces can be incredibly significant. I feel like the This American Life episode about disability insurance and its role in American culture after the welfare reform bill is remains one of the most important and interesting pieces of journalism I've encountered in the last 10 years. And you know, just because that was an evergreen program that wasn't about breaking news doesn't mean it wasn't serious, important, and worthy journalism. But a lot of what I listen to is like stuff that you could listen to at any time. I was just listening to a Better Call Saul Insider podcast explaining the episode yesterday, and I was not listening to the news of the world. So this this bet on news is like a bet that we still want to get that information in real time in audio, and I'm not certain we will always need it. Right. Well, I'm unlike you uh, cosmopolites drivers, I moved up to the country and I'm hostage to an automobile for countless hours in a given week, driving people to and from theater and ballet and on and on and on and on. So for me, NPR is invaluable. And, um, and, and I will say also, I have a completely new kind of relationship to my local affiliate than I had when I lived in New York City. NYC's a great station. I liked it perfectly well. But up here, it was a very, it was almost the first experience that drove home to me that I no longer lived where I used to live. Because the NPR affiliate that I listened to up here, its territory, it, the center of its territory is both the capital region of New York State, so the Albany area, which I'm about 40 minutes south of. So it extensively covers state politics in a way that WNYC never did, which is fascinating. I, a completely different window into the way my state-level government operates. Uh, the depth of its corruption and self-dealing is uh, investigated rigorously and on, on an ongoing daily basis by my local NPR affiliate. It also affiliate, it also covers the Berkshires, which is one of the kind of rural arts capitals of America. It does that beautifully. Um, so my sense of living in a very specific place comes to me through this intermediary um, that then also gives me this national programming. I would also put in a word for radio as a medium. Yes, it's true. You can, and I totally agree with you, Julie, you can do the dishes and you can drive a car while doing it, which is going to remain unique vis-a-vis print 
and um, and video forever. It's also a uniquely companionable medium. It really is. There is something about having a voice but no image that's um, it creates a degree of intimacy and trust that I don't think any other medium can quite imitate. Um, the thing that worries me is what worries me in general about large, formerly thriving institutions that are so pervasive, they seem like a fact of nature, but then get disrupted and disappear in virtually a blink of an eye, which is, I'm not sure that a world made up of enterprising free agents with very low barrier to entry, um, making their own homemade podcasts can quite replicate what a large, centralized, powerful, socially and politically connected news organization, news gathering organization with bureaus all over the world and the power to call up a leader and force them to give you a quote. I don't know that that the disrupted digital world will ever replicate that. Should I worry or not worry? I think the thing that's crucial for like broader media consumers and consumers of podcasts and NPR to understand about this is that there's several different challenges facing NPR. One is uh, what should they do digitally and how fast should they shift resources to digital and can they do that without undercutting the responsibility they have to cover the world? The second is just their institutional culture and two prongs there. One, to what degree are they too bound to the concerns of the local stations like the one that Steve is listening to that pay a huge chunk of their budget and get the newscasts and supplement it with local reporting and coverage and uh, really would prefer that NPR not tell everybody to skip listening to the local station and start listening digitally instead. And the NPR One app, in fact, only really works if you connect it to a particular local station and, you know, has been designed with placating those interests in mind. And then second, there's just this kind of institutional slowness that I do think is real. I mean, just from talking to people who work there and, you know, the sense that this incredibly talented group of people have been talking about racial politics in America on NPR's blog, but they have no flagship audio program and that that's happened for years um, must be incredibly frustrating to those voices. It's frustrating to me as someone who would like to listen to that show from those people. And, you know, this other flap that's gone on recently, which Leon didn't get into in his piece about, you know, whether Cokie Roberts, one of their commentators, had written in some other forum something much more genteel, but to the effect that Trump is a dangerous joke and we should be concerned about his ascendancy, which is like not an outrageous point of debate. <laughs> um, for a commentator to make. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for like any human to make. Uh, and, you know, the NPR kind of got its feathers in a twist about what its commentators were allowed to, you know, it just it makes them look fusty in a way that does not necessarily inspire confidence in their ability to smartly and speedily navigate all of the coming transitions. All right. Well, Leon's piece, we should say, is called A Fight for the Future of NPR. It's on Slate.com, of course. It's a terrific piece. Uh, check it out. And come to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest and let us know what your NPR listening habits are. Are they evolving or ending in any way? And how is that affected by your podcast listening? That's facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is also sponsored this week by Green Chef. They're a new food delivery service that makes cooking at home easy with their consciously sourced organic meals and ingredients. One thing that distinguishes Green Chef is that you can choose different meal plans. So as opposed to just having vegetarian or meat eating, there's also omnivore, paleo, carnivore, or gluten-free. And then you can get fresh ingredients sent right to your door. 
I love these services. It is a godsend to me as a busy working mom to get to cook sometimes without having to think about what to make or where to get the ingredients or whether I still have cumin or don't and have to throw a rage fit like Dahlia Lithwick. But you know, one thing that I think is really cool about Green Chef, and I made a delicious Green Chef meal last week, is the fact that you can pick this diet. So I've been trying to eat a little less starch in 2016, and some of these delivery services are delicious but give you, like, all kinds of pasta and tortillas and let's have another sandwich on bread. Uh, and it was cool to get a meal that was delicious and just chock full of protein and veggies. Green Chef is offering our listeners four free meals with your first order at greenchef.com slash culture. That's G-R-E-E-N-C-H-E-F dot com slash culture. All right, Steve, back to you. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse uh, Dan Coyce. What do you have? Uh, so earlier this week, um, they gave out the Pulitzer Prizes. Um, as every year, I was disappointed that I did not win the Pulitzer Prize for tweeting. But the Tampa Bay Times won two Pulitzers in local and investigative reporting to add to their life total. Uh, they now have 12 Pulitzer Prizes in their long and proud existence. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say they're going to win another one next year. And they're going to win it for a series that ran uh, last week and this week in the Tampa Bay Times called Farm to Fable. Uh, it's by Laura Riley, who is the Tampa Bay Times' food critic. And she took a couple of months off from eating in restaurants and reviewing restaurants at all to do an exhaustive and amazing uh, investigative series about the fiction of farm-to-table as a concept, um, the way that restaurants across Tampa and, in fact, of course – you realize as you read this around the world, um, are telling you, are bragging about the localness of their food uh, while, in fact, no one is checking on them. And as all restaurants do, they are, in fact, doing their level best to stay alive in a difficult marketplace slash just lying to you and serving little to no actual uh, local food. So Laura Riley went to dozens of restaurants uh, all over Tampa and St. Petersburg Um grilled them about where their stuff was coming from, uh, stole samples of their food or smuggled samples of their food home with her in baggies to DNA test to see whether it was really the fish they said it was, and then drove out to the farms they claimed they were buying from to find in some cases that they weren't farms at all, that they were farms, but they had stopped carrying any of the things that the restaurant said they did, uh, or that they were just a guy who once had a bunch of oxen, but then now has sold all his oxen. And when Laura Riley asked him where all his oxen were, he asked her out for a drink. Um, so she did a great piece on that. She did another great piece on farmer's markets and how pretty much any farmer's market you go to, in fact, is just the stuff that was too gross for grocery stores to want, which then goes into the farmer's market, um, marked local, but in fact has been shipped from just as far away as anywhere else. It's a really amazing series. It made me really angry. Um, it also made me feel like a wiser consumer. And I'm going to go ahead and say it's going to win the Pulitzer next year, um, maybe for local or investigative, either one. Uh, well, can I just interject here and say that I I happen to be extremely close friends with a half a dozen people who are farmers and who sell to high-end Brooklyn restaurants and their entire business model is getting massive checks at the end of every month for having, you know, prepped their lambs for the SATs and, you know, um, you know, wheeling them via chauffeur practically to your plate. So it's not an entirely for I mean, I, I hope we're not extrapolating from this woman's reporting in 
Florida to all uh, farm-to-table practices because I can tell you from firsthand experience, some people are doing absolutely noble work in this field. Yes, and one really interesting piece is is are the restaurants and farmers that Riley finds who do back their claims up, who are truly doing what they say they are doing, and they're like truly inspiring the the livings they make in a difficult economy based solely on their honor on the fact that they believe that if they're saying they're doing something and it's important to them, they really have to do it. And those parts are great and wondrous. But I think in many economies, especially economies outside of Brooklyn that have difficulty supporting the kinds of prices you really have to charge to maintain that kind of supply chain, I think a vast number of places that claim localness are really just faking it. Oh, absolutely. All right, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I'm going to repeat an endorsement because I believe it with such vehemence that I was moved to write a piece about it this week. Uh, Better Call Saul, which I endorsed uh, several weeks ago, is just a show that is so good you shouldn't be missing it. Uh, I have now doubled down and published a piece on the Slate site uh, in which I declare that Better Call Saul is better than Breaking Bad. And I think it's probably too soon to know whether that will be true in the long term for the show, but certainly it's off to a stronger start. It just concluded its second season on Monday night of this week. Uh, and the whole show is operating, it's starting, it takes as its beginning point the level of chutzpah and brio and excellence and wisdom that uh, Breaking Bad was at by the time it concluded. So please do not think of it as some cute DVD extra conciliatory hop along Cassidy to uh, to the glories of Breaking Bad. It is a masterpiece of television. And if you ever liked Breaking Bad, you should definitely be watching it and stop wasting your time. Uh, I trust you on this. I'm psyched to watch it. I haven't even really started, but... Um, well, you did watch enough of it to talk about it on a podcast last year, I think. <laughs> I know. Or did I, he? I, I totally kins- I Kinsley gaffed it. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. All right, moving on. Um, my endorsement this week is uh, I was very lucky as a new graduate student to go to UVA and study with the philosopher Richard Rorty. At that moment in his career, Rorty had already done all of the highly technical intellectual brush clearing which he felt he had to do as a philosopher before he could become this kind of omni-intellectual, literary omni-intellectual that, that he was by 1990 or whenever it was. Um, and I, I'm sure, in fact, I know 25 years ago, I read some of that technical philosophical work. I've returned to it. He wrote a book in 1979 called Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature. It is an absolute freaking masterpiece. I mean, I, it's scored and underlined and there's tons of marginalia. So I have proof that I read it 25 or 30 years ago, but returning to it now, it is a magnificent work of American philosophy. I mean, it's one of the, I think it's got to be one of the five or six best works of American philosophy written in the 20th century. It really is that good um, and that consequential. All right, Dan, thank you so much for coming in and subbing for Dana. I think it's going to happen again in the future soon. Thanks, guys. I'm so glad to be Dana minus the final A. (laughs) Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. 
Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our interns are Lizzie Fison and Lindsay Albrecht. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, all hail to the chief. And the Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dan Coyce, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you next week. Thank you.